1: This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. My guest today is Karen Slaughter, a number one best selling author and worldwide household name who has sold over 35 million copies of her books. Karen was in Ireland recently for the Murder One Festival's Midsummer Series of Talks, a visit which coincided with the publication of her new novel, The Last Widow. I was delighted to get the chance to speak to Karen, who told me that with a surname like Slaughter, she was destined to become a crime writer, either that or a serial killer. We talked about the violence in her books and how she likes to divide the gore evenly among the sexes and about the fact that she keeps a gun in her home. But I began by asking her about her recent experience of being interviewed by Piers Morgan on Good Morning Britain. Karen, thank you very much for coming in to talk to us. Uh, I have to start off by saying I just saw you were on telly with Piers Morgan. Yes. I want to ask you about that experience because it's not something we've all uh, experienced. What was it like?
2: Well, it was very interesting because he was super nice and listened and uh, intelligent and all those things that you would want a man to be. Uh, And then the camera came on and he kept interrupting people, like just stepping over them. And I guess that's kind of why people watch him. Uh, either to love him or to hate them, which as a brand is a typical brand <laughs> for a lot of people in the news business. Well, what he was, it was asking interesting.
1: You, He was asking you about killing Eve, wasn't he? And about how yeah. uh, you know Phoebe waller briggs had said that um, that it's empowering to have uh, yeah. women doing the violence. Let's say yeah. uh, for so long there were women were just the victims in these stories. Um, what, what was your take on it?
2: Well, you know. One one thing that I, I you know, because you think about all the brilliant things you're going to say and then the camera's rolling, you're like, hey. <laughs> uh, one thing I, I thought was that it's a very feminine way of killing, right? Because the fact that shopping is involved and <laughs> she's buying clothes for her. I mean, a, a typical feminine thing. I'm, I'm, most of my stuff comes from Amazon, I'm going to be honest. Um <laughs> Or the sports authority. But uh, I, I just think that it's a really fresh way of saying it. And, I mean, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, my God, she's so freaking clever. And, and Fleabag is amazing. But honestly, I as a woman, I am super happy to see those sorts of stories. Mm-hmm. And men have been getting these kinds of stories for years where they're the hero or the antihero. And no one complains about that ever. And we get one really fantastic show where a woman is doing nasty things and not crying about it. And they're, oh, no, 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 we can't do this, we can't do this. But I absolutely love it. And I think, especially right now, universally, women are so pissed off. (laughs) And to see a woman have that kind of power and control and indiscriminately murder, I mean, we've all felt like, we've all been in a situation, I think, where we've just thought, you know, if I had a gun in my purse, this would be over, right? And it could be at the shopping center or it could be at your kid's PTA, parent-teacher meeting or, you know, any number of those things. But I just, I'm so sick and tired of not being listened to and not being trusted to know my own mind, my own body, my own choices. I mean, I'm just sick and tired of it. And I'm so disgusted by all the rhetoric a, that's going around about controlling women, because why can't they just trust us? And why can't we fight back as one? Because there are more of us than there are of them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm feeling Trump as the specter of Trump has come <laughs> into this conversation now. I, I mean, it's it's awful. We've talked about it a lot on this podcast, Alabama and the various ways that they're trying to roll back, row versus Wade. Um, how are you about that, about Trump's America, about living there as a woman?
2: Well, I think he's a symptom of a disease that's been festering for a long time, and I think part of the, th- the the equation is that people are tired of not being listened to in general and government not working for them, systems not working for them. We had the great idea of the American dream, which a lot of um, Irish suckers bought into and got on a boat and got there, and they were like, wait a minute, <laughs> what happened? Um it, but I think a lot of Americans are realizing we're, we were suckers, too, to believe that. Because the, the American dream works for a particular type of person, and they're generally white, and they're generally male. Um, and it's a bill of goods. And, and white men have been so smart. I'm, and I'm talking in general terms. Not all white men. Let's just say that. Um, but they've been so smart throughout history with propaganda to make us believe that they are the better, uh, superior race uh, who can run everything. And they've done it mostly through cheating, you know? And they say, well, everybody has an opportunity, but then they only promote or hire people who go to their club or who's the son of their friend and who knows the white man handshake and plays golf and all this stuff, right? And I think people are figuring that out. But I also think. That for a really long time, the world revolved around us, and now it's not, and other people have voices and opinions, and, you know, I love, love my dad. He's a fantastic dad, Hillary supporter, and he said to me a while ago, he was talking about the 1970s, how great it was, you know, you could just do things on a handshake, and if you got... caught speeding by a cop you could give him some money and you were fine and i said well yeah if you were a white person right but let's talk about jim crow that wasn't so great let's talk about the civil rights movement the feminist movement all of these things that you know where people were saying wait a minute i want to be in on that where you can get those benefits too so you kind of understand in a lot of ways why people are like when they say make america great again what they want is a return to that because it worked really well for them. For them. And, and now they're really seeing well. how it works for everybody else, and it sucks. Yeah.
1: Um, I, I, I'm sorry I had to ask you that question because any American comes in here, it's immediately like. Uh, yeah, I feel like <laughs> a, a
2: monkey in the zoo. <laughs> they're like they're, you know, grooming me and saying, hey, well, tell us about this. I you know, know, how sorry. do you feel about abortion? Um
1: We've had great news about abortion in this country, you know, a year ago yeah, when we, we yeah, repealed absolutely. the AIDS. So, that's, so it feels like, and a lot of people have said that, especially American friends of mine coming over here and seeing us almost as a beacon, you know, right. of what can be that you can actually progress instead of going backwards. But I suppose America also reminds us how vigilant we have to be yeah, and how we tenuous. can't take anything for granted absolutely. even when it happens. Um, you spoke of your dad there. So let's go back to your childhood. Um, I think it's really interesting how you began writing your stories. You're You're one of... Uh, four girls? It's three. Three, three girls. Three. And you were the youngest, is that uh, right? Yes. So your stories were a little bit about your, and they were always quite violent uh, from Well, an I didn't age.
2: know that they were particularly <laughs> violent. Um, my dad would pay me 25 cents every time I wrote a book, and most of the books oh, were. Good dad. All right? So mm. he's like teaching me how to work already. <laughs> but most of my books were about my sisters being mutilated or murdered or they would disappear and I wouldn't have to deal with them anymore. You know, just the dream of being an only child. Yeah. And how did they take that? Well, so the demographic for my work was above the age of 15, firmly above the age of 15. Anyone below that, except for me, didn't really enjoy it. Um, So I didn't really market to that age group. Uh, But my dad was delighted and he really encouraged me to do more. And I think that's probably where I got the idea that I should write things down and be a writer. Mm-hmm. And I've loved it ever since. And you grew up in the South. and mm-hmm. but the th- So
1: the things that you were writing and the, the way you were, you know, the imagery you were using wasn't necessarily that kind of, you know, what a nice little girl from the South should be doing. But your dad encouraged it. He didn't mind the content. He did,
2: you know, because he told us really dark stories. Okay. And the, many of them were cautionary tales, like the little girl who left the refrigerator door open and died. Uh, or the little girl who touched the air conditioning thermostat and died. Uh, So he was really sending us some strong messages there. But he loved scaring us, too. He absolutely—that was his favorite thing to do. And it, whether it was in the summertime, he'd get on the roof and stamp around and then say, oh, is that the gremlin who eats little girls who don't listen to their fathers? Um, it's I, all making <laughs> sense now, girl. Yeah. So he—my he, my childhood was one of terror, thanks to my father. And actually, you know, this is, um, this is maybe something that it would make sense to Irish listeners particularly— because he does, he does have that very dark kind of sense of humor. But when we were little girls, when my grandmother died, she was buried in the Sodom Cemetery where all the slaughters are buried. Great fans of sodomy. And um, there was a preacher buried there who was buried with a telephone because he was afraid the rapture would happen and he wouldn't be raptured. So he would have to call someone. And there was an actual telephone in there. And it's, like, it's sort of like Harry Potter's, the most powerful magician, but he still needs glasses. It's like, you know, I think if Jesus wants you or God wants you, he's going to be able to resurrect you. You know, you're not going to have to phone a friend. Um, but there was a, a telephone—this is this before cell phones, right? So there was a telephone line coming out of the actual grave up to a telephone pole. And my dad, when we would visit my grandmother, would make us go under that telephone pole and between the wire, and we would shudder and, you know, just freak out all the time about it. And usually it was Easter, so we were wearing our little pink dresses and the underwear were the ruffles, And which was weird. My sister was 16 by then. Um, but we would go under this, and one time my dad had a bell behind his back. And remember, telephones used to sound like bells. Yeah, yeah. And he rang this bell right as we passed the grave. We— have been in therapy each of us for years and have no recollection whatsoever of how we got back to the car. But what we do know is we were all piled in the floor of the back of the car covered in urine. And with so, your frilly knickers. Covered yes, in urine. with our in our, and our, our saddle oxfords. And so when you know, when people tell me that my books scare them, I think at least you're not covered in urine. <laughs> So Karen, it
1: all seems quite inevitable. Then, in a way, that you either sort of got completely scared of all those things, or you just went full into it, which is what you ended up doing as a career, or serial killer,
2: or serial killer. There's a few options but you chose as sort of the least worst, maybe option, less nighttime work. (laughs)
1: Um, When you were in high school um, and starting to, did you always write? Then would you continue those stories? I did,
2: and you know, specifically in high school, I had my ninth grade English teacher. So that's a little before high school when I was there, but. Uh, about 12 years old, and she said something to me. It was the best thing anyone ever said to me, was, which is, you're a very good writer, but you could be better. And my first thought was, well, who the heck does this woman think she is? I'm perfect. But, she, you know, she, she showed me language. She showed me Oscar Wilde. She showed me Flannery O'Connor. She showed me all of these great writers and talked about them as people and how their lives influence their work. And, you know, Scarlett O'Hara is this great Irish uh, feminist hero. Her, her M- Margaret Mitchell's mother was a suffragist. Margaret Mitchell was a feminist. And so that's one of the reasons why you see Scarlett O'Hara as a strong character. I mean, yes, yeah, slavery was really bad, let's be honest about that. But just the whole the whole journey she takes is a very feminist story, right? She doesn't really need a man— to make her successful. She needs a, a man to to be her companion, right? To, to be her lover and all the, these things that we all want people in our lives to be but don't necessarily turn out to be the way they are. And so understanding their lives and the fact that they were using language as a tool and that writing was a craft was really important to me. So that's when I started to get serious about writing and started to understand that I could use it kind of as a way to hold up a mirror to other people, not just my sisters, uh, and and say, this is what I'm seeing and this is what life is. Mm. And to do that, you went down that full-on sort of crime and quite
1: violent uh, absolutely. road. Absolutely, well, yeah. Because, it's, well, let's blame your dad. Let's blame all that yeah, darkness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how soon, do you, when you went, were you very clear, like, I'm going to be a writer. This is what I'm going to do. I'm yeah. going to write books. I'm going to tell stories.
2: Absolutely. You know, it, it when you are a writer, you know this, Uh, and you do events, a lot of times you'll see people from high school, and they'll come up to you and say, do you remember me from high school? And your first thought is there's a reason why we lost touch, right? (laughs) Um, But I had a woman say to me, do you remember me from kindergarten? And I said, yeah, and I thought, I'm not even going to try to lie about that. So I said, no, I don't. And she said, I remember you because when the teacher asked us all what we wanted to do with our lives, you know, I still live in that small town we grew up in, so I know what happened to people. And you and I are the only two people who answered then what we're doing now. And you said you wanted to be a writer, and here you are, you're a writer. And I said, well, what did you want to do? And she said, I wanted to be divorced from a wealthy man. And I I was like, Sheila? It was her. I recognized her then. Yeah. And she did it twice, so she's arguably more successful than me. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. She's but it's true. I've always, I've always said I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know you could make a living at yeah. it. I mean, you're in journalism. You know that's impossible. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> so you really can't. But I, I mean, it. It was just something I knew was always a part of my life. I think if you're a writer, writing chooses you. You can't choose to be a writer. Otherwise, you're miserable. More <laughs> miserable than just being a writer. Uh, and I love it. I love every part of it. And you've sold over 35 million books. Yes. Which is like, does it's that crazy. number boggle your mind or what do you? It's incomprehensible. I hope it's not one weird guy sitting in his mother's basement, you know, <laughs> clicking on Amazon over and over again. Um, but I, it is, it's something that I really can't think about when I, especially when I write. Because I need to drown out all the noise and it needs to just be about story and character and and. I write books that I want to read, and so that's all my focus is on, is not the numbers or well, I hope people buy this, mm. I hope I'm number one in Ireland, that would be great. <laughs> you know, I don't think about that until the book comes out, and then I really want it to yeah. happen. But those moments when I'm just me in the story, that's when I'm my truest self. The Irish Times Women's
1: Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. It's really interesting that I think it's something like 85% of crime fiction readers are women.
2: Fiction readers in general. Fiction in general, yeah, but yeah. like
1: So the crime books and are read by, yeah. are consumed and, you know, inhaled by women. What is it, do you think, about your books and the kind of things that you write that particularly appeals? I mean, you do well, go into feminism. You do have lots of strong female characters and interesting storylines relating to women. But why do they love crime so much, do you think?
2: I, well, as a, one of those women, because I read an awful lot of crime novels, I think a big part of it is it's very cathartic. These are the crimes we're mostly likely to to be victims of, hopefully not you and me, these other women in here, I you know, you're on your own, sorry. <laughs> Statistically, we're going to be the ones who are okay, exactly. right? Exactly, yes, I um, but, I mean, no woman would leave the house if she didn't think that statistic was accurate. But I think my... It, my love of crime novels comes from the fact that I know when I read a crime novel, something will happen in that book that very seldom happens in real life, and that's justice. And that is a that makes me feel better about the world, is knowing the bad person is going to be caught. Normally, in, you know, in a crime novel, it's not like they're just going to be arrested. They're really going to be punished, and I, th- that just really appeals to a, a, a very— deep part of me that wants to know that the world is going to be a safe place. Um, in your latest book The Last Widow as you do this a lot don't you it starts off with a very
1: kind of innocuous scene and then like by well, whatever somebody something terrible has happened and in this one it's a it's actually quite a lovely shopping scene with a daughter a mother and a daughter and she's trying to buy lip gloss and the mother's kind of a tomboy and doesn't want her to, to buy them so is that always something that you do sort of lull people in and people kind of know that that's a that's source, my I mean. uh,
2: TM Yeah, yeah <laughs> everything's normal then something awful happens but that's usually how violence occurs right i mean you had a murder around here recently near the um near easton's where we were earlier t- closed In down the entire street, street. Yeah. but nobody who went to work that day thought that was going to happen right and that's what makes violence shocking that's what makes it scary is the not knowing when it's going to happen mm-hmm. And so that's – I'm very deliberate when I set that kind of thing up. And some crime novels, the detectives show up after the murder and you get the story that way. But I think every writer makes a decision when they start a novel, especially with crime, how realistic am I going to be? And I want to be extremely realistic and I want to focus on the victims. I'm I'm not one of these – People who writes about a sexy psychopath who charms everyone and he's the hero, right? That, And some people can do that very well, but that that's not the type of writer I am. I like that as a reader. I want to show violence for what it is. There's nothing sexy about sexual assault. There's nothing titillating about rape. There's no woman... In her right mind, I mean, there's always one or two women who are crazy, but no woman in her right mind would wish this on herself, would wish going through the process on herself. I mean, it's really horrific to go through that. Uh, and so with this scene, yeah, it's a normal everyday scene with a mother and daughter. There's a twist at the end because I, I like my twists. But I tell you what, the hardest part about writing that was initially when I wrote it, the, the daughter was older. Because I want, I, I said to my editor, you know, I have to make her older because of the whole makeup thing. You know, because you wouldn't let an 11-year-old wear makeup. And she was like, uh, actually, yeah, <laughs> actually. And so I felt like my grandma because I was like, what? Because we weren't allowed to wear makeup until we were 14. And not that I wanted to wear makeup. I re- clearly remember my stepmother chastising me when I was 14 saying... If you don't shave your legs, you're never going to be wearing pantyhose. And I was like, win-win, right? <laughs> I don't want to no, wear it. And we no call them tights. tights. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't no want to wear tights. You. So
1: that's grand. I'll keep my legs hairy. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: Like um, so mm-hmm. that was that was really shocking to me. So I had this moment like, what, this, is this little girl a tramp? You know, what what is going on here? Yeah. But it, it was interesting, you know, and, and I guess it's very easy Uh, not having a child to make these value judgments about what children should be allowed to do. Yeah,
1: but you do do a lot of research. And I'm just thinking about for all the things that happen in your books, you have to immerse yourself in the reality of those things. And, And obviously you like it because that's what you do for a living. But does any of it ever freak you out? Are you ever kind of at home thinking... Oh God! This is like a you know I don't know the noises. Are you scared? That's what I'm asking. Do you get scared? Well, what not scares about you?
2: My research and not about what I write. I mean, fear is from the unknown. So I'm. I think of myself as a person who gets scared by normal things, like you're falling asleep in the middle of the night and you hear a bump and you just think, well, there's a serial killer yeah. in the house, right? That That's a normal fear.
1: Yeah, um, but you're someone who creates those worlds, so when you think that, is it not a million times worse? Than- no,
2: not at all, not okay. at all. I never go to that. Um, I never go to the details that I know from cases and things because I, I just think it's statistically improbable that it'll happen to me. Uh, but I do have a, a gun in my bedside drawer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you know you obviously know how to use it? Absolutely. A lot of people,
1: I, I was talking to some Americans uh, last year and it was a couple of women, and they were saying it's very normal.
2: Well, yes and no, you know, it just depends on where you live. And weirdly, I feel safer in Atlanta than I do when I'm at my cabin in the woods. And, right. and, you know, there's far more crime. I'm much more likely to be eaten by a bear in my <laughs> cabin than I am, you know, to be uh, have someone show up and, with bad intentions. But it does make me feel safer. But I honestly think that if you own a gun, you should have to meet certain criteria and you should have to qualify with it at least once every two years to mm. prove you know how it works. Because a lot of Americans have guns and they've never used them. Mm. Uh, so the first thing that's going to happen is that the bad guy is going to get the gun. Hey, look, a gun, you know, and use it against you. A lot of Americans just leave them. They don't understand the capacity for violence in a gun. They leave them lying around and children get them. At least one American a year is shot by a dog. I'm not kidding you. By a dog. By a dog. yeah. Your own dog shoots you, usually in the foot because dogs are rather low. But, you know, people leave a, a rifle or a shotgun lying around and the dog lies down on it and just, like, pulls the trigger by accident. God. Boom. But what's your take on gun control then and, and obviously the shootings and the, the
1: it seems to have just... And and all the young people coming out and saying, please, can we not? I mean, the thought of a kid of mine being in a school and having to learn what to do because somebody comes in and, you know, those drills that they have to do, it's awful.
2: It is awful. And as an American who believes in America and is very patriotic, I am so pissed off because we have stopped fixing things. You know, we put a man on the moon, if you ask any American, we single-handedly won World War II. (laughs) Um, we, we've we've still won Vietnam. You know we believe in fixing problems, and this happened after the nine eleven terrorist attacks. Bush attacks. Bush said we're going to defeat terrorism, but then we have these mass shootings, and people are like, eh, what are you going to do? We'll fix it. If you said to me as a, a lawful gun owner. We're going to regulate your gun. I would say, sign me up. If you said, we're going to buy back your gun or you need to turn in your guns, we're just not going to do this anymore, I would say, absolutely, let's do it. Because I, lo- I like having the gun because I write about guns and I need to know how to use them. And I think if you have a gun in your house, you should practice with it. And it is quite fun to, to f- shoot, but it's not my ability to have fun is not worth even an injured person. Not it, let alone someone who's mm. murdered, mm. and we just have too much access. And the, we have enshrined in our Constitution the right to bear arms, but not in an unrestricted way. Mm. So I think we need more restrictions, and I think that most— I know that statistically 70% of Americans want guns to be more regulated. Mm. But I also feel like we're at a point where, weirdly, thanks to Trump— the gun manufacturers are really struggling. Under Obama, you had to buy as many guns as possible because he was going to take them all away, right? right Everybody okay. was terrified. And then Trump got in, and the the people stopped buying guns. And I think the statistic is 10% of Americans own 95% of the guns, which is great to think about, right? But it, it really, I think, is this younger generation who's saying... You're not going to take care of us. We're going to take care of ourselves. The same and they're thing's they're happening. doing it with the environment, I was just going to say, but yeah, climate yeah. change,
1: it's really interesting how I think it's because they've been exposed and they know so much more at such right, an earlier right. age than we did because yeah. we didn't have, you know, the Internet and everything else.
2: Yeah. I'm kind of at that point in my life where I think if I can survive air conditioning still being around, I'll be happy. <laughs> I mean, but the rest of them, you know, I'm going to recycle and all that. I, but I think I did my part because I didn't have any children. So, you that know, was good. Yeah, if that I accidentally was... use a, a the wrong kind of straw, at least I'm covered. Yeah, exactly. Um, talking about the, the
1: genre of crime fiction, and if you look at the hierarchy of what we consider to be important and not literary fiction, so-called, is right yeah. up there. Does that annoy you in any way that those kind of books are held up? you know it, it have have more kudos than others just by virtue of I don't know, they might sell two copies, but there's somehow better because whatever well, I language mean, there's, used. there's
2: several issues around that. One is, screw them, I don't care. i I'm very happy to be in crime fiction. It sells the most copies. Um and you know if you're gonna do a job you might as well be in the most successful part of the, yeah. the field. Um, but I also think that it's not just literary fiction that gets more review space. It's literary fiction by men. Oh yeah, well, so goes that you know <laughs> the Vita the Vita study that's done every year disproportionately men get more attention reviews that sort of thing, mm. and it's not even the fault of men that this happens because a lot of the gatekeepers of these newspapers are women. And some of them, not all of them, were brought up during a time when only one woman could be successful. And so there's that kind of competition there of picking and choosing. and, And in many ways, I'm reminded when I talk about this of Carol Shields, a remarkable writer who passed away several years ago. And I remember... Listening to one of her last interviews, she, I mean, she won all kinds of prizes, Pulitzer Prize. And she was asked by this interviewer about the disparity between reviews and that sort of thing. And she said, you know, anytime a man writes something, it's just going to be considered more valid. And I thought, my God, if this woman at the top of her field thinks that, I am screwed. And so I made a decision to stop caring about it. Right. Because it's just going to happen, and I'm going to speak out against it. I'm not going to do events with men who have said in the past that men write better than women. I'm just not going to validate them. And I'm going to speak my mind, but I'm not going to sit around being furious about it. Mm -hmm. Another big thing for crime is, is
1: Netflix and things being made into films. You've got a couple of projects at the moment on the go, and that's two standalone books, The the Good Daughter and Pieces of Her. Yeah. Am I right? How do you feel about that? Are you involved in the scripts, and do you, do you think you're going to get really involved in all of it or be sort of at a distance?
2: Well, I'm kind of both because the thing is Pieces of Her is already in production and were well, not filmed yet, but they, they've got the scripts, When you get it – when for me, what happens when I write a book is I get a lot of calls from people from Hollywood and they pitch their ideas and that sort of thing. And the woman who called about pieces of her, Charlotte Stout – She's worked on uh, Homeland and House of Cards. Uh, there's a great series on in the U.S. right now, I'm sure you'll get it, called Verdon Fossey, about Gwen Verdon and um, Bob Fossey. Okay. Um, she's just a magnificent writer. And she really had insight into the characters. And then suddenly I was talking to a producer, Bruna Papandrea, another woman who uh, produced Big Little Lies and Wild oh, okay. and Gone Girl. And then I'm talking Is to... she a, working
1: with Reese Witherspoon then? Yes, yeah, she, she, yeah. she was. She
2: was her partner and then I was talking to Leslie Linka-Gladder who's worked on Mad Men and oh, just a gosh. ton of different shows and it all happened to be women and they just really got these characters intrinsically and I was very excited about that and we we got the green light from Netflix I've read this the first script and I'm really happy with it hopefully we'll have casting news in a few months and then start filming and, and it should be out next year.
1: So are you enjoying all of that? It's a very different world in some ways because your writing is very solitary, sitting down producing things and this is a real collaboration, isn't it? It yeah.
2: is and that the word collaboration is why I've never wanted to be a TV writer or a script writer <laughs> because... Um, I love your honesty. <laughs> I, I don't want to collaborate, you know. I... Well, with some exceptions. I did a short story with Lee Child, but we're really good friends, and we've known each other for 20 years, and we trust each other. He's Mm -hmm. very professional, so I had that trust in him as a friend and as a professional, and that was a little different. But um, I was telling my friend about this earlier, but but when I first tried to write a script in Hollywood, I had a co-writer, and we were going to the office one day, and he said, you know, you always get notes at every stage. You get a note, right? And whether it's from the network or you know, why can't his eyes be green? Or you know, these these sorts of things. And he said, you know, Trevor had a great uh, note on the second act. And I said, okay, well, who's Trevor? <laughs> and uh, he said,
1: uh, Trevor, he's Trevor, Trevor, <laughs>
2: if you're listening, Trevor. Uh, he's probably running a studio now. Uh, and he said, oh, Trevor's our, our intern. He's in high school, but he's a real old soul. What? And I thought, screw you, Trevor. I've written 15 books by that time, you know? So... It was then that I decided I don't want to be a screenwriter. <laughs> okay, that was there the end of There are some people that. who love it. Gillian Flynn, she loves that collaboration. And Megan Abbott, and you know they like that. And I, I, I maybe I'm I'm either too arrogant or too stupid or both to It'll take a bit of both. notes from Trevor. Yeah, <laughs>
1: Trevor's not. Yeah, no. But leave Trevor. Also, out. the
2: title of my sex, ta- sex tape. Okay.
1: <laughs> tell me about your writing are you in the cabin in the woods are you very disciplined are you what do you do what time do you get up all that sort of stuff people are very interested in that. well
2: i am i i do have this cabin and it's pretty isolated my da- dad's down the street um so sometimes i'll open the door in the morning he's left soup for me and cornbread uh and left a note to make sure i bathe that sort of thing and uh <laughs> important note And, uh, you know, I just – I go up there. I'm completely isolated. I get up in the morning, usually about 7, and I start writing, and I – don't stop until I can't write anymore, and then I go to sleep and I wake up and do it the next day. And sometimes that's 15 hours, sometimes it's 12 hours, but it, it's pretty intense. Is there any wine involved here, whiskey? No, anything, I don't no? drink, I don't smoke, I don't do dr- I'm very boring as a writer. I am, I'm it's clearly not Irish. Clearly. Because uh, uh, I just, I never, if I'm gonna have that kind of caloric intake, it's gonna be a cupcake. You know, that's, I, I firmly feel it should be <laughs> something I enjoy. Um, but I, I love those moments where it's just me, I'm, I'm on my laptop, and and it's a very uh, wooded area, so I look out my windows and see trees, and there's a pasture and a creek, mm-hmm. and occasionally I'll hear a donkey from the pasture or a cow or something like that, and... You know, so suddenly I'm writing, I'm using metaphor or simile related to cows and donkeys for some reason. Um, but I that's my favorite thing in the world to do and it's not easy. It's not it, it's work, but mm-hmm. it's work with purpose. And I think that, you know, the key to happiness is to have purpose in your life and you might not necessarily be the most ecstatic person, but if you do have that purpose, you mm-hmm. feel like there's a reason to get up every morning and that, and that's my calling is writing.
1: I heard you have a waterproof notebook for when you have ideas in the shower.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's on section cups, it's on the glass. And, uh, it makes a great gift because people don't believe me. It comes with a pencil that also has a suction cups, and it says, "So great ideas don't go down the drain." <laughs> uh, that's Brilliant marketing. But yeah, I you know right now I've got two books going on that um, two. shower, two two different, yeah. Okay. Yeah, just ideas for openings and things I want to do. Actually, the ending for the next book is on that notepad. And what are you working on at the moment? The next book for next year is going to be with Will and Sarah. Okay. And I'm very happy. It's my 10th Will book and my 20th Ten. book. 20 books, I know. One a year. Is your dad really proud? Does he take kind of credit for everything that you've done? He takes no credit, <laughs> but he's very proud. Um, he And he says, don't tell people that I'm telling you I told you awful stories. And it's like, you did. And he said, well, don't tell them, you know. Um, but he, he's so proud of me. He doesn't understand why anyone would pay me to write stories when he, I, I think, cause he got it for a quarter. He's like, why are they paying more than a quarter? He's really happy about it, but that's not, if I built houses and I could point to a house, he would say, oh yeah, I see, I see why someone paid you to do that. But just pages, you know, and it's sort of like when I was in California a few months ago and I was in the writer's room talking to the writers about pieces of her, I had this moment where I thought, you know, all these people have jobs now because two years ago I sat down in my pajamas with a laptop and wrote this. And that's just crazy. To think about, you know, and it's going to be more than this core group of 10 people. But it's going to be hundreds of people. And it's it's sort of shocking to think I get paid for this. Many of my critics would think I shouldn't. But um, I just think, God, what a life. What an amazing life. And so my dad has that kind of perspective on it, too. It's like, well, I don't know what she's doing, but, you know, I'm glad they pay for it. What What about critics and how, how hard is your neck? Um, Pretty hard because, you know, the th- here's the thing. People have been reading me for a while now, and I don't want to disappoint them. I know they love the characters. I know that they know what to expect in my stories. And if they are disappointed, that bothers me. There's always going to be some jerk on Amazon who says, the page was torn, one star. I've actually gotten a review that says, I'm not going to read this, one star, right? Or this was my husband's book, one star. You know, it's crazy. It's like psychology there. Um, I should write. I should just write a book about people on Amazon. Um, but I, I don't really. I mean, it's good to have reviews. It's fantastic, even bad reviews. I mean, the first time I was on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, was also the first time I was reviewed by People magazine, and it was a horrible, scathing review. And you could do them side by side, you know, bestseller list, review. And I think, how many times have I bought a book based on a review, but I only remember what the jacket looks like, and I buy it, and I'm reading it. I'm like, oh, this was a bad review. I mean, why did I buy this book? But I, I just think everybody has a different opinion, and they're entitled to it, but I don't have to listen to it.
1: Have to ask you about your second name and I'm sure everyone does, but Slaughter, like what a name for someone who does what you do. It worked out very well. Yeah. And it's real.
2: It is, yeah. No one believes me, but there's a place in England called A Lower Slaughter and Upper Slaughter. Yeah, I've I've done the T shirt. Uh (laughs) but I'm I guarantee you we were indentured servants or something and we got to America we're like, Yes, Slaughter. Are you ambitious, Karen? Absolutely. Yeah. And have always been? Absolutely. I'm very driven, and I always have been. I'm very competitive, but only against myself. Um, well, that's not true. Sometimes I'm competitive against other people. But for the most part, it, it really drives me to do better with each book because I think I've got to do something new. I've got to tell a different type of story. I've got to try a different technique. So in that way, I think it's good to have that sense of competitiveness mm-hmm. with myself. And
1: when you were a kid you read a lot, but there was also reading competitions between people who could read the most books. Was yeah, that
2: yeah. Yeah. I always won those because I was a, a a tubby little child with many allergies. So I was often found inside reading. And I had the advantage. A, what about your sisters? Do they love your books and do they Well, tell you know, you? one of my sisters suffers from dyslexia, which is something I write about. But she's very proud of me. Um and you know, I guess you never outgrow your childhood because even as a child, I was the most loved by my parents and the most attractive and intelligent, and that hasn't changed that much as we've grown older. Um, That's so not Irish what you're
1: doing yeah, right now. That's so American. But if my, uh,
2: if my sisters disagree with me, then they can be interviewed on another podcast.
1: I like it. Karen, it's been fascinating talking to you. I wish you all the best with everything. Thank you. I can't wait to see that on Netflix. And this will open up a whole sort of new world and, yeah. and bring a whole new audience, I suppose. Maybe people who haven't followed you so far to your book. So there'll be another 35 million in no time. I hope so. I reckon. Um, so I hope you enjoyed yourself in Ireland. You're going to be talking at the festival to Sinead Crowley yes, tonight. Yes. Absolutely. Um, so that will be great. And hope you come back in Ireland to talk to us again. Thank you. And that's it for today. Thanks very much to Karen Slaughter for speaking to the Women's Podcast, and a reminder that her book, The Last Widow, is out now. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at it Women's Podcast, or you can email us on the Women's Podcast at IrishTimes.com. And we do enjoy a bit of praise from time to time. If you like what we do, then please do head along to iTunes and give us a review. The podcast is produced by myself, Rosheen Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better?